Get out and vote for Roy Moore. Alabama, the reddest of red states. Tonight, Ruby Red Alabama is sending its first Democrat to Washington in 25 years. Alabamans didn't want to somebody who dated 14-year-old girls. Deepening GOP concerns, the rift in the Republican Party is growing. Every Republican in the country this morning needs to wake up and fear for their political lives. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. So, Heather, we saw the stunning results this week of the Alabama special election to fill Jeff Sessions' old Senate seat. And it is a victory for Doug Jones over Judge Roy Moore. And the country literally was sitting up in the light of the TV screen late into the night on election eve it's amazing to see one election in one state during an off period gather and and assemble both the interests and imagination of the whole nation uh we uh we are going to run around and talk about our take. First, Heather, I'd like to know what you're feeling. What's your take on what happened? Well, first of all, I wasn't up late in the glow of the TV screen because they did that to me in 2016. I'm never falling for that one again. Um, I want to point out that this is a big deal. This election is a big deal. The concern trolls are sort of saying, oh, the Democrats got to worry about this. No, we shouldn't take too much from this. I disagree with that. This is the sign of the moment when the tide, which turned a few weeks, maybe a month or so ago is really taking off now now using a tide has turned in alabama that's going to be a whole nother issue uh let us run right over to our guests we've got terrific guests today first carol anderson professor of african-american studies at emory university author of white rage the unspoken truth of our racial divide carol's been on the show before she's fabulous welcome carol Oh, thank you so much for having me again, Ron and Heather. And welcome, Jack Hitt, longtime writer, contributor to the New York Times Magazine, and a contributor to This American Life, some of the best This American Life riffs ever, and co-host of the Gimlet History Podcast, Uncivil, uh, which takes us into tales of the Civil War that seemed to have happened yesterday, the unfinished Civil War. Uh, thanks, Jack. Hey, Ron, Heather, great to be here. So what what are you feeling uh, in the wake of Alabama? Oh, re- I've got to tell you, initially it was just relief because thinking about what having someone like that in the Senate, with, like Roy Moore, was just unconscionable. And then there was just incredible pride, pride because of the mobilization of civil society in Alabama, pride because you had the majority of Alabamans who voted, who said, we want no piece of this. And so, like Heather, I too see this as a moment where the nation is coming to reckon with itself between what it is in its most depraved, um, debased way and its aspirational self, who it really wants to be. And that was what was so stark and clear. It was like looking at the portrait of Dorian Gray, right, where you see this modeled pustule field image and you're thinking, oh, and then you turn around and you're like, okay, that's not what I want. Well, Heather gives us rolling tide. Carol gives us relief and pride. And now let's go to Jack Hitt. What's your take, baby? Well, so we should have called it almost the miracle of Alabama because the, the, the chances of Doug Jones pulling this off was so remote. And really about 100 pieces have had to all fall precisely 
in place for him to win. It, it is a, we can analyze it in, in granular detail, but the other thing that I love about an election like this is that, as, as President Donald Trump said in a tweet, a win is a win. And that's how most Americans will see it. Most Americans just saw a Republican lose in Alabama. And wow. that is a huge, huge story. And Donald Trump, who doesn't like to be branded a loser, now has to sort of embrace that. Although I'm sure in his tweets he will, he will find a way to back out of, of having been a loser on this one, right? But this is um, on that level, on the big, just every election is an up or down vote. It's somebody wins and somebody loses. And the Democrat won in the state of Alabama. Well, but l- let me just point out here that this is perhaps a win not solely a partisan win, but a win for democracy, a mm-hmm. win for for the the voices who have previously been silenced or ignored in American society, and especially in this case, women mm-hmm. and especially black women. I think we're watching sort of the crack up of the Trump voter coalition, whatever you want to call it, because and I think part of it is, is that they can't quite identify which period in American history was when America was great. I think Trump ran on sort of like this halcyon 50s kind of Eisenhower era idea. And, you know, uh, obviously Roy Moore thought it was 1850, uh, you know, and the and the high water mark of, of American human bondage. Um, and the Heritage Foundation thinks it's like the 20s or something when we had this like super laissez-faire government. But no one can quite identify the right, you know, sort of moment when America was so super great, because each one, of course, once you analyze it, uh, you know, the 50s was, yeah, great if you were weren't, say, you know, anything but a, a white upper class uh, man, you know. Well, what, um, well, what's an image? Right? What's, so, well, what's an image of up ahead then, Jack, to say, all right, well, so, now, where do so we go for from me, here? What's, what's interesting is, is, is watching the, the, the coalition that did form around Doug Jones. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, so you had this enormous, huge black voter turnout, mostly in, you know, in Birmingham and Tuscaloosa and Montgomery. A large urban turnout for him. You had the, the white suburbanites that Carol was talking about, but you also had the, the sort of anti the anti Trumpers that were Republican renegades and the millennials, right, or the under forty group, if mm-hmm. you want to call it that. So there was a youth vote, and now and now the question for the interesting question for me is like, is Doug Jones going to speak to that constituency? Is he going to go to Washington and actually work for them? Because I think one of the things that has always broken up the Democratic coalition when they finally get into power is they forget who took them there. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, yep. I, I yep. notice that there's all this language about how blacks save the whites mm-hmm. in uh, Alabama. I'd, I'd love to hear y'all t- talk about that language because I feel like, you know, it, it kind of diminishes the whole black vote by giving them this like super heroic status. First of all, it, it takes away from them their agency is just like participants in a democratic process. You know, people who were in that they were they were first and foremost people voting for their self-interest, just like every other voter in America, right? That's that's what we all do. Uh, I don't think any black voter went into the booth and said, "I think I'm going to go save white America." <laughs> I'm not sure that was their motive. <laughs> but I see this language all the time now. It's like, you know, the super sympathetic black woman, yeah. especially yeah. black women, man, they really get it, right? Like it's it's like they're comforting they ha- they the, the long suffering white man. But they've been so far out in front since Trump was elected that and, and they really have not been getting the press for that. People forget. Bree Newsom, you know? Yes. She was up there early on. Who's and Bree Newsom? Who's Bree Newsom? 
who who everyone was standing around the foot of that that flagpole in front of the South Carolina State House, going, "Somebody yeah. should take it down. Why is nobody taking it down? I, we, we got a problem. Somebody should take that down. Who's going to take it down? Are you going to take it down?" And Bree Newsom's like, "Forget this," and she climbed it up and took it down. It's like, <laughs> right. "Yeah, somebody's got to do it. I'm going to do it." Yeah. But they've been out in front for a very long time. And I think that one of the things that we need to be paying attention to is what that black voter turnout was about. Yes, you had incredible grassroots mobilization and organization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you talk to African Americans, um, and that's why I love when you're saying, you know, this isn't about trying to save anybody. This was about, they recognize, as black women did during the 2016 election, mm-hmm. that the Trump wing of politics in America is absolutely lethal for black people. Exactly. Lethal. Right. right. They were voting for themselves. They weren't yes. voting to save somebody else. They were voting the way every other voter in America votes. That's and, right. And I'm also heartened by because, you know, Alabama has a really tough voter suppression um, between uh, the voter ID requirement and then closing down the Department of Motor Vehicles in the Black Belt counties to the voter purge, purging the voter rolls and then putting people on the inactive list and telling they need to, you know, follow, you know, all of this just is, my friend used to say, just mess. Um, All of that. And But because the stakes are so high, now what the Democratic Party needs to be paying attention to is that it has – the African-Americans, particularly black women, have been the core of the party. Mm -hmm. And if that constituency is not paid attention to, if there is a way to shield the black community from some of the lethalness that's out there – the last thing that the Democrats need to do is to ignore that constituency. And so I saw where Tom Perez today, who's the, you know, the chair of the DNC, you know, he acknowledged the role of African-Americans and particularly black women and said, this is a constituency we cannot ignore. Now, the fact that you have to say that out loud in 2017 tells you that that is a constituency that has been ignored. And so not, not only a, that, but look at the numbers. You know, like like they were expecting a twenty five percent turnout among right. Blacks. It was forty eight percent among Black women. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the turnout for Doug Jones was ninety eight percent. That's a constituency you really don't want to ignore. I'd say and, I'm and, no good at numbers, but I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> <laughs> Democracy is a participatory sport. They're getting it. Wow. Well, you know, it, it, it harkens back to the time when we, we always really had four or five parties under the guise of two, right? Right. When we had, like, the mm-hmm. Nelson Rockefeller wing of the Republican Party and also the very conservative wing. And then we had conservative Democrats in the South and liberal Democrats elsewhere, right? So, it, and, and the nice thing about that was that if you could get three of those voter blocks to maneuver together, then you had legislation pass. So this this hardened sort of bipart you know this two duality that we've been living under for the last you know whatever a couple of decades really makes almost govern governance almost impossible. So I hope you're right that that we're cracking that up and that we'll have these uh, different factions. I just want to go back to one thing about Doug Jones for a second. Uh, so so he has to go to Washington now and start voting on uh, on some very precarious things like maybe even this tax bill and. The voters who sent him are sending him there, I'm pretty sure, would not be in support of this bill. 
but he's going to he's going to now have to maneuver as sort of a semi, you know, conservative democrat from Alabama and he's going to have to play inside the 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 congressional arena. And I feel like uh, at least in the in the past Democrats have always sort of betrayed their own constituencies when they've moved to DC and suddenly found themselves stuck in the sort of congressional, you know, political uh, hellhole. <laughs> but um, well, anyway, it, it'll be interesting to see because yeah. the, that that high voter turnout. And let's, let's, I saw the numbers this morning. Mm-hmm. The black voter turnout in Alabama was higher than it was for Obama in two thousand eight and mm-hmm. Obama in two thousand and twelve. Right. That that is amazing. It, and I think the other thing that to, to to talk about here is that I don't know who did it, and and we haven't I haven't seen any good ink on this, but there was an Im- really impressive get out the vote campaign done mm-hmm. very subtly among Democrats, white and black, up and down the state. Yes. I know that the NAACP had a lot to do with it, and there's yes. this group called TOPS, and I know that other groups came in there yes. under the radar. They got people like, you know, Cory Booker and, and Charles Barkley and these guys to come in, and they didn't bigfoot it by getting Obama or somebody else to mm-hmm. come in there like that or other out-of-staters. Um, it was very smart, and I don't know if the DNC ran it or if this was just a, a dozen of these local uh, voter registration groups. But that aspect, I, I almost feel like after Virginia and now mm. Alabama, mm-hmm. it seems like somebody in the Democratic Party is beginning to get it. And that, I have to say, probably worries Karl Rove, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and everybody else the most. This is no doubt a moment of political opportunity for the Democrats. Look, this Doug Jones guy comes out of nowhere. He's got no record to speak of. He he pulls this upset victory. And, and you're absolutely right, Jack. He has an opportunity for improvisation here to to map some new ground for the Democrats. Uh, and and he's got plenty of incentive because otherwise he's going to be a three-year senator because <laughs> he'll be knocked out in the next election if he doesn't pull off some way to plant his flag deeply in the soil of Alabama while he is up there in the nation's capital. I mean, this is exactly the kind of thing that provides avenues of improvisation and opportunity for political parties. That's why this is a fascinating moment, and it's going to be fascinating to see what Jones does once he gets to the Capitol. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with our guests in just a minute. This is Ron Suskind on Freak Out and Carry On. Hi, we're back. Well, we have talked in this show a great deal about what rose up actually started to rise up actually in the 50s and then came to full force in the 60s, the so-called Southern strategy, Uh, the moment at which the Democrats, long the party of nightmares for those in the South, embraced civil rights led by Lyndon Johnson. Nixon and his gang saw a moment of opportunity and said, we can move forcefully as Republicans into the South, maybe make it a solid South on behalf of Republicans, the so-called Southern strategy. That's 1968. We are now decades hence. Are we at a moment where we can bury without ceremony the Southern strategy? Ron, let me push that back a a little bit to the election of 1964, which Mm -hmm. is uh, the rise of Barry Goldwater. No doubt. Because, of course, Goldwater rises on the conscience of a conservative. And that argument is that the federal government needs to get out of desegregation. That's his primary argument. And, of course, 
In the election of 1964, we got the the great slogan, Republicans that support Goldwater wear buttons that say, in your heart, you know he's right. And the Democrats respond with, in your guts, you know he's nuts. <laughs> and everybody thinks that, that Goldwater's not going anywhere in 64, and he only wins his state of Arizona and five deep southern states. And mm-hmm. that's where mm-hmm. the southern strategy is born, is in that 64 election yep. when Nixon comes up in 68 and he desperately needs to hammer together a coalition the way Carol was talking about. And he needs to pick up people from all over. He goes and cuts a deal with Strom Thurmond, who had been the person who switched over to support Barry Goldwater, cuts a deal with Strom Thurmond from South Carolina, senator from South Carolina, and says, I'll stay out. Let me throw it right to Jack Hitt. A well-known Strom Thurmond expert, uh, Jack, uh, and <laughs> I, I believe a distant <laughs> relative of Strom, unless I'm way off. <laughs> How many cousins away, Jack? Uh, my grandmother was his first cousin. Yeah. Mm. So uh, I am. So I am, Strom, I am Strom Thurmond's first cousin, twice removed. Oh my word! Yeah, Jack, um, speak to me, brother. I'm, I just have to. I have to come clean on that. I, I never met the man, and my 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 side of the family didn't didn't much care for him. But um, uh, but yeah, he's he's he starts leading that pack of Democrats who, over the next two decades, will flee the Democratic Party in the South and become Republicans. Leading up to, by the way, Senator Shelby, the Republican, the other uh, you know senator from uh, from Al- Alabama, Alabama, was elected as a Democrat. And then switched over. So I mean, th- there's been that wave of of of, of that flight. Uh, you know, as as a Southern white man who has seen this cycle of the reinvention of of the Southern strategy, the reinvention of racism and and some new guys, some new vocabulary, over and over again in in only my lifetime, and having researched it to see that that cycle dates you know all the way back, I'm loath to say that it has ended. I suspect that the incredible ingenuity of American racism will find a way to voice itself and and create another version of the Southern strategy. I just say that, you know, I don't know if you all know the famous Lee Atwater quote, uh, who very famously gave the outline of the Southern strategy, saying that, you know, in the 50s, you know, you, you could say the ugliest things and get the white vote. Uh, and then in the 70s, you could say busing. And then by the 80s, you could say tax cuts. And then after that, you could just say, you know, local empowerment or something. And now that vocabulary has become so refined into sort of almost non-racial language that the Southern strategy has a way of, of replicating itself without, at least on the surface, appearing like racism at all. Well, well, I want to ask I want to ask Carol and Heather this question, which is that the youth vote in Alabama turned out pretty, uh, mm-hmm. you know, pretty hard for Doug Jones. That's a very diverse group, maybe the most diverse generations, you know, in American history that that have acted together, right? Mm. And I want to say that as that cohort ages, we're going to see a, a really fundamental shift, especially in the South, uh, not only of the Southern strategy but voting patterns in general. Having said that. I have been listening to demographic arguments about voter change all my life, and they have never panned out. So I throw it to you, Carol. Please, God help me. Help me. Help me. Tell me I'm wrong. Help, help us, Carol. Wrong. Help us, please. Um, and I think that part of it is that there's, there's that kind of hope in that youth vote. But mm-hmm. what we also have to be very cognizant of is that we saw the youth out in Charlottesville with their tiki torches. 
That's right. Um, yeah, that's right. And AUF. what yeah. we also mm-hmm. have to be cognizant of is that we have about a third of Americans who do not believe in facts and evidence, um, who only listen to basically one source of news, who have been on that Kool-Aid for so long that the scripts of racial entitlement, um, these scripts of there are these lazy people who are getting stuff that they don't deserve, these scripts of I worked hard for everything that I have earned and I refuse to give it away to these people. Those scripts have been so embedded that we have to understand that although we're like, whoo, Doug Jones, there were also lots of little tales in that from the large number of white men who voted for Judge Roy Moore. From the way that that certain news station, Fox. Um, <laughs> we didn't just, know what you were talking about, Carol. <laughs> I, I know. I know. <laughs> um, that has not really dealt with the way that race actually works and the evidence the way that racism works in America. But instead has continued to feed these these scripts, these narratives that frame how people see this world. And so we have about one third of Americans are in that frame. We can't ignore that. Okay, well, let's let's just uh, do a a little bit of a capper with uh, what I call a Trump spin moment. We're going to go around the loop here, and I want everybody to offer their best guess nomination for the Trump spin going forward. What will Trump say to wriggle free of this, to reframe it, to make it seem like someone else's fault or something he knew or God knows what? All right, Jack, you go first. Trump spin. Okay, well, right right now we already know that there are two candidates for for the big blame, and they they both are like in a in a standoff shootout on Main Street right now, and that's Steve Bannon and Mitch McConnell. So each one has blamed the other for the entire fiasco. I love right? this. I think this right? is a terrific and, Trump spin. If he's listening to this, you're going to hear this in public. All right, but, uh, but what I want to say is Trump is going to have to decide which one he is going to back or or shoot. Um, he either has to like you know push Bannon away entirely and and sign on with the Republican majority in the Senate. No, 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 no. Or no, the other way around. No, no, no. Okay, Heather, Here, Heather your turn. Your turn, Heather. This, go ahead. If, Trump. If spin. I get to speak as Trump, that's what I want. This is entirely a setup. The media shot Roy Moore from behind. It was completely unfair, and that it is it was a it was a, a dirty deal, and that Trump people really wanted Trump and Moore, and they just got it was stolen from them. And this is actually a win for Donald Trump. Okay, well, he, Carol. He, can I just add? He did. Okay, tw- okay he did tweet something like, uh, "See, I, 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 I dissed Moore the first time with Luther Strange. I called that one right." Yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Carol? <laughs> Carol, you're up, baby. And I think that he would say something like, you know, I just don't believe that all of those people actually were really legal voters. That's I fair. Think- yeah, 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 absolutely. Right. That might be That's the winner, coming. Carol. Yep. Uh, yep. That yep. could be, you know, even last night uh, when uh, when Roy Moore's talking about recounts and this mm-hmm. is going to work, you could just see him thinking, how many of those <laughs> voters from Jefferson County can we discredit? Right. Can we essentially turn into hanging chads? Right, right. Yep. Oh, I think it's absolutely fair. And I think, you know, and and I think Trump knows it. That's why he was mocking this thing called the resistance uh, when he was in Pensacola, mm. um, because there are everyday regular folk 
who are going to town halls, who are calling their senators and their congressional representatives, who are marching, who are writing, who are donating to civil society. There is a mobilization in American society right now. And that's why I think Alabama is so instructive because there was a mass grassroots mobilization happening there that basically took on the voter suppression of that state and that also took on the Republican National Committee and who also took on the Republican machine in that state and said, we are taking our country forward. And we will not be held back to 1850. We will not be held back to 1950. We are going forward. And it is that kind of vision, that kind of determination, that kind of you don't have the power to stop me. W.E.B. Du Bois said something like, and I'm paraphrasing, there is nothing more powerful than a people's determination to rise. Well, Carol, that is a thing of beauty you just said. Uh, Carol Anderson, professor of African-American studies at Emory University, author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, which you're speaking about brilliantly today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Ron and Heather. And Jack Hitt, writer, longtime This American Life contributor, contributor to The New York Times Magazine, co-host of the fabulous Gimlet History Podcast, Uncivil. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Heather. Thanks, Carol. Nice to meet you. It's nice meeting you too, Jack. Thank you. Yeah, Heather, always good to chat. It's always a pleasure, Ron. And thanks, yeah. Carol and Jack. That was great. That was that wonderful. Was fun. <laughs> yeah. Come back again soon. Okay. Please. Thank you. I'm okay. Ron, Ron Susky. This is Freak Out and Carry On. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FreakOutCarryOn. Visit our website at WBUR.org slash FreakOut. Our email address is FreakOutAndCarryOn at WBUR.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.